Howdy. Uh, this here old show may contain some cussing, some uh, discussions of a non-biblical nature, and if that sort of thing does not sound like something you'd be interested in listening to, then I would suggest you turn around right now, fella, and uh, just head out the other way. Saloon's down the street. They got some nice girls there. They must be destroyed on sight! back for episode 73 of They Must Be Destroyed on Sight, a movie podcast, and we're continuing our look at Spaghetti Westerns, and we're going to be talking about two sort of semi-horror entries into the uh, Spaghetti Western uh, genre, and two of the most interesting and unique films in the genre as well. I am your host, Lee, Four Candles for my cult, Russell, and I'm joined by uh, my co-host himself, Daniel. God made them. I killed them, Harper. And uh, Paul may jump in. But uh, how are you doing there, uh, Daniel? I'm doing well. I'm uh, a couple of beers in already. So uh, we're going to have a nice uh, little recording session. Yeah, I'm drinking scotch. We're keeping it very casual. None of us are uh, prepared this time around or prepared yeah, less I have, than I have no plot summaries this week because fuck it. Um, well, I don't know. Does anybody care? Like, that's, that's kind of what I want to know. Like, are people actually, like, chomping at the bit for my plot summaries, you know, because I do put a lot of work into those. So, you know, it would help me to know, like, if people actually care. So we'll see if the download numbers change this week or not. Yeah. Well, let us know. I mean, we have a handy Facebook group. They must be destroyed on site on on Facebook. Uh, Just go there. Tell us. Do you do you like Daniel's plot summaries or do you want them stricken from the podcast altogether? We probably won't uh, abide by either of your decisions, but, you know, it's nice to know anyway. I might just start writing them for the ones that interest me. As opposed to all of them. Like, if people yeah. don't like them, you know? So, you know, we'll see. <laughs> but uh, speaking of polls, we do have a poll on the group right now. If you scroll down a little ways, you'll find it. It's one of the more recent posts. Uh, basically, it's just sort of getting a feeling for what you guys want to hear after October, which is already set in stone, basically, for what we're doing. We've got a few movies selected for main episodes. I have almost half of the bonus episodes done. There might be even a lot more bonus content, depending on um, who submits stuff, if they do have the time, because we did throw the feelers out to uh, some of our podcasting friends if they were interested in recording little mini bits for uh, bonus stuff. As it stands, there are now two full bonus episodes recorded and... I'm doing another one, supposedly, with Paul tomorrow night. We're going to have all kinds of stuff in October. The poll asks the question, uh, what do you sort of want to see afterwards? And right now, neck and neck with three votes each is Italian horror and sci-fi. If you haven't voted on the poll, vote on the poll. We're pretty much going to cover everything that's listed on the poll. It's just, we're. I just want to sort of see, sort of gauge where I'm going to place it in the schedule, basically, is, is what I'm getting at with that thing. So, uh if you have the time, just vote on the poll, and uh, we'll see where it goes. Um, of course, I'm just going to throw my shit in and just be like, no, we have to cover this like three weeks from now. And Lee just goes, okay, whatever. Yeah, that that'll so. probably happen too. Now, let's do this romantic comedy in the middle of October, Lee. Okay. I, actually, I think, I think I'm going to press for the, uh, the the one I've been pressing you for is the Basic Instinct Showgirls episode. I think uh, I want to do that before Christmas. Sure. Who no wants problem. to hear that? Who wants to hear that? Like, leave us, leave us the notes in the Facebook group. You want to hear about 
women murdering people. I do. I, I, I think that's a, that's a good thing to hear. Really. Yeah. We do have some comments, so we'll go through these on our Perfect tarm- Timing Hard Bodies episode from uh, a, while, a little while back. Uh, Derby Stardom says, Perfect Timing used to come on in the mid-80s on HBO and Showtime in the middle of the night one year. I bought it on VHS when it came out. It is truly better than Hard Bodies. It had a 70s feel, but in the 80s. I remember it because of the wonderful actress Michelle Scarabelli. Yeah. Yep. That's interesting to see it actually did come on, like, HBO or one of those ones at, at some point. Yeah, I would have been too young at that. I mean, I would have been – I mean, I didn't have HBO at that point. I wasn't staying up to 3 in the morning watching Chitty Flicks on, <laughs> in 1987 or whatever. But yeah, no, that's – I mean, it's it's kind of amazing because it's so obscure and forgotten now. To, it's almost like, oh, yeah, I remember seeing that, like, back in the 80s. Yeah. I had it on VHS. Like, I can imagine there was a time period where you could buy that VHS for, like, a dollar in a dollar bin. And yeah, now you, can, now you can sell it on eBay. It really just makes you think I should go and buy all the movies from the dollar bin, save them for 40 years, and then like sell them all for like 100 times what I paid for them. Yeah, it would be kind of interesting to see if DVDs sort of have the same uh, value in like 30 years. You got the DVD of, uh, of fucking Starship Troopers? Wow, man. I got to get a fucking <laughs> hold of that. You know, it's, it, everyone else is watching these fucking new trendy fucking hologram virtual reality versions of these movies where you're in them. But no, I want to have the experience of being outside the movie and watching it on a disc. I, I want to pretend it's 1998 and I'm Ooh. watching this. I'm going to get an old shitty TV. I'm going to put it on, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want an immersive experience. I want it on digital. Damn it. In about 30 years, I can be a very rich man. I can sell all this shit on eBay or whatever the uh, counterpart is at that point. Uh, I've got, you know, thousands of uh, movies right now on DVD, so... There was an episode of Amazing Stories with Mark Hamill as this itinerant, like, guy who collected junk, who uh, literally did that. Held on to all the things that he loved, and then, like, you know, the whole thing was he was an old man, and then suddenly sold it all and made millions... And therefore, it was it was okay to hold on to all your childhood for your entire life because then you get to be like eighty and you just sell it all and you make you make a bunch of money. If it wasn't for the guy's career skyrocketing again with the new fucking Star Wars and having a pretty decent career in between, anyways, with Batman the animated series and stuff like that, I could have made the joke of him just being one of those guys at a vendor table at a fucking Star Wars con somewhere selling fucking vintage action figures of himself for $800. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, uh, you know, Star Wars doesn't, I mean, other fandoms definitely do that, but like, yeah. Star Wars seems to have not gone that way, at least for the leads. Yeah. Um, not like the Galaxy Quest treatment, you know. <laughs> CB Fall says, I never liked this movie, period. Very great podcast. And that was in uh, relation to Django. So, uh, yeah. Sure. Awesome. And we do have a question to uh, be posed to all of us for uh, Movie God. And this is cool because if you listen to the last episode, I have a little music cue now for There Can Be Only One Filmography. And I also recorded a music cue for Movie God games. So every time uh, we do it now, I can use that music cue. And I didn't expect to be able to use it so quickly. So thank you, Jack Graham. Movie God. And he asks, basically, movie god, uh, we have to eliminate one of these people from the uh, timeline. So it's going to be either Ray Harryhausen or Jim Henson. Pose it to you first there, Daniel. The thing is, it's not so much fun because you don't get to... Because I did read this ahead of time, so I kind of knew it was coming. You know, Jim Henson means a lot more to me, just personally, than Ray Harryhausen. Ray Harryhausen, probably... I mean, okay. Ray Harryhausen definitely means more to the history of cinema because... 
you might argue without Ray Harryhausen, there might not have been a Jim Henson. Mm-hmm. But I think Jim Henson, even without a Ray Harryhausen, Jim Henson would have had some kind of career. It might not have been in puppetry. But Jim Henson is so like fundamental to myself and my wife just because he brings that kind of like uh, humanism and everything to his work. And, and Harryhausen, as brilliant as he was, I kind of think of as more of a technician. So to me, if I've got to kill one, I kill Harryhausen. Okay. Despite the fact that that's terrible. I mean, it's awful to kill Harryhausen, but <laughs> um, you know, it's a terrible, terrible Hobson's choice that Jack has presented us with. But if you make me choose, I keep Jim Henson. All right, that's fair. I have to go with uh, keeping Harryhausen. I think basically because you're a monster. I yeah, I am a monster, and I love guys who make monsters. I think it sort of boils. I think I was thinking about this, and I was like, okay, I think this question essentially boils down to who had more of an impact on you growing up watching the movies. And for me, it's always going to be Harryhausen. I don't get me wrong; I love everything that came out of uh, Jim Henson's studio for the most part. You know, a lot a lot of stuff. I mean, even later on, watching, like, Farscape and stuff like that, I, I love that shit. But Harryhausen, he just, he, he, he basically uh, started a lot of this shit. I mean, he, he was a master technician. He was a workhorse. I mean, he did all this shit himself. And just the amount of shots he had to set up and the amount of shots he had to take for even the simplest movements in these films. And he made... A lot of them come to life and uh, made you suspend your disbelief and accept what you were watching in the movie, even though it was stop motion. Just really have to go with Harryhausen, because I, I grew up watching more of his stuff than I did Jim Henson, basically where it falls. Fuck you for and, asking and a question, that question, Jack. That might very well be the like few, like few three years, four years, age difference between the two of us, as to like, whether you're a Harryhausen or a Henson fan. Yeah. You know? I didn't even think about the fact that Henson now has his own legacy with the creature workshop and all that kind of stuff you know mm-hmm. i mean it is it's almost like a hard question to ask because there is this continuum between the two right harryhausen yeah. leads to henson in this very real way i guess what i'm saying is that without harryhausen i think henson still kind of exists I, he may not even be a puppeteer i think henson would have had a fascinating career even without you know that yeah. kind of thing or maybe he just becomes harryhausen Without without Harryhausen being that kind of guy, you know. So I mean, it, it is just kind of like it's so up in the air. But um, you know, you make me choose. Henson means more to me personally, and so I cho- I, I choose Henson. But yeah. um, Harryhausen was obviously a genius and um, so much great stuff that uh, I mean, I love Harryhausen as well. It's it really is a terrible choice, but you know, yeah. sorry, I'm over explaining. But Jack Ram's a Jack Ram's a terrible man for asking that question. Well, it's just because he's a Marxist that he, you know, <laughs> makes us choose these things. evil, evil man, evil, evil man. man. Yeah. Um. So I did have uh, actually a comment from Jack Graham uh, mm-hmm. on our Starship Troopers episode, which not even isn't really about our Starship Troopers episode, but he uh, d- he had never seen the film, and um, I was kind of chatting with him, and then he posted a little bit on Twitter. So I don't, I'm not reading anything particular, but I wanted to share with you his interpretation of Starship Troopers, um, okay. kind of in big picture form. He saw Starship Troopers and thought it was brilliant because, in his mind, the film is the in-universe propaganda film made by the government to sell the war to the populace. So essentially, sure. like you look at you look at the film itself, and the reason it's like it looks like Triumph of the Will is because it basically is this Triumph of the Will is. for this like 25th century or whatever future. 
And then suddenly that explains why all the acting is so wooden and why it's just really dumb action scenes. And, and like, it completely justifies all the, like, terrible, all the things that I complained about. And I feel bad because I feel like I gave a slightly superficial reading of that film when we reviewed it, you know? Yeah. But I don't because I feel like I was just bored by the shit. So I was like, that was the answer I gave. But um, it totally salvages the film if you view it through that lens. Yeah, you know? it does. And I wouldn't have thought of that, honestly. But that that's a very simple, but at the same time, really interesting interpretation of that. Like, that's that does just totally change everything. I mean, I mean, my, my answer to that and my, my response is, well, okay, so if that's the film, it's still kind of a one-note nothing. I mean, it's still kind of once you get that, it's like, oh, that's fascinating and great. But it still it doesn't really change my enjoyment of the film, you know? It yeah. just kind of goes like, oh, well, okay, so it's meant to be all these things that it just is, you know, sort of thing. So, I don't know. I, I still think it's kind of a misstep by Verhoeven and Neumeier. I mean, I don't think it's the as, as good a film as, uh, like, Robocop was. Yeah, because um, I, I can kind of look at it. It's not sophisticated, if, you know. I can, I can sort of look at it, if, if we're going for that, if we're going for that this is the propaganda film, to you know, and it emulates all the sort of points that uh, any previous propaganda film would. So in this universe, it probably would have been knowingly and decidedly made to emulate past propaganda films and fit a certain structure, fit a certain style, and get a certain message across then it's probably no different from what you see in our world where people try to do pastiches and homages to like old horror films and they recreate the style perfectly, but if they're recreating a shitty movie, they're still making a shitty movie at the end of the day. Right. Um, and if it's not entertaining or all that good, then it's still not all that entertaining or all that good. The, the key is when you emulate like the the aesthetics and the style of a of a previous movie from a from a different time period and you make it interesting and better at the same time uh but but at the same time making it feel authentic so this feels authentically like uh triumph of the will but at the same time Actually, it's not even quite as good as triumph of the will well, if if you just if no, you're, it's if you're, really not no. i mean i mean try, i mean no, with no with no insult to Paul Verhoeven, Lenny Riefenstahl is a brilliant filmmaker. You know? <laughs> uh, I'm I'm sorry, uh, Verhoeven, you, you just didn't make as good a Nazi movie as <laughs> as he did. But you know, still, when we were doing the the review, of, I I still did like it a bit better than you did. But but I mean, just taking it as a movie as it is, the narrative structure, the characters, the stories, all that shit, it just kind of falls flat for the most part. I mean, there's some fun stuff in it that I liked a bit more than you did, but for the most part, it's like it fails as an action film. It's a, it's kind of a fascinating film, like, metatextually, just because it's like, why does this fail? Mm. And I think that's kind of where, you know, like, oh, if you view it as a <laughs> propaganda film made by the, the Federation in the, you know, in-universe, mm. suddenly, like, all the failures make sense, because, of course, they're, like, complete fucking fascists who have no idea about how to make a compelling or interesting movie. Of course, all, all of this is shitty because it's made by shitty people. Yeah. I really feel like a couple more passes on the on the script would have been all it would have taken to really, like, make that thing sing. And then, like, recasting half the film. But, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, you got, you got, like, four lead roles, and, like, two of them are really 
not so great. <laughs> or uh, just have Dina Meyer in it, starring in it, and cast her more like they did with the uh, uh, the female lead in, uh, it, was it, Ed- Edge of Tomorrow? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recently? Like, that's or, kind of the same idea. Just, just don't, don't have the one Rico character, just have Dizzy, uh, just have Dizzy kind of yeah. wander around and entering the mobile infantry and fall into fascism. That would be, yeah. and, and then die. And have a boyfriend, and then we follow the boyfriend for ten minutes. Yeah, we again, we've made a better movie. Yeah, why are we? Why are we sitting here, Daniel, and not fucking writing screenplays? Why, why are we not millionaires? Is really yeah, the question. You know. Exactly. I do like Jack's idea, though. That uh, that is an interesting twist on the whole thing. So, uh, very very nice. Yeah, I haven't heard him um, comment. I know he was planning on watching John and Demonic, but I don't know that he's watched it yet, and I haven't heard him say anything about it. Uh, which maybe is probably he did. for the best. Yeah, maybe he did, and and he just hates us now. He doesn't want to talk to us about it. <laughs> He's like, yeah, fuck that shit. No, I get that. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And you you get a you get a little curt message on Twitter. You're no longer invited to any of my podcasts, Daniel. <laughs> because <laughs> he watched John Mnemonic, and it's actually, you know what? If you asked me which one I'd rather rewatch again right now, it's probably John Mnemonic, just because it's bad in an interesting way. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Starship Troopers kind of bored the shit out of me, so you know. Yeah, yeah. Movies need only three things badasses. You tell me what you want done, and I'll do the hell out of it. A chick with drive who don't take no jive. Boobs. Do you know that the female breast. Known to be the source of life since Eve, can be deadly weapons and body counts. Body count: the mathematics of murder and menace. The BB and BC podcast is your source for exploitation film discussion of B movies. You can find the show on iTunes and Stitcher Radio by searching for BB and BC Podcast. You can also listen to each episode directly from the show's website located at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Let's go to work. Clytus, I'm bored. What plaything can you offer me today? An obscure body in the SK system, Your Majesty. The inhabitants refer to it as the planet... Earth. How peaceful it looks. Most effective, Your Majesty. Will you destroy this Earth? Destroy it utterly. Send Rick and Danny in wool rocket Ajax. So, just destroy it? That's what Ming said. Don't you ever listen? Well, there's no arguing with Ming. Hail Ming. Wait! You see those transmissions on the Visua screen? Crow? Nightmare on Elm Street? Chud 2? Black Belt Jones? Nightbreed? What's a critter? Oh, I've seen those things. Flash? I guess we could wait a while before the destruction. Yeah, and watch the movies. And talk about them. The Hell Ming Power Hour. Disobedience to Ming.
for now. You can find us at Legion Podcast. You can find us on Facebook. iTunes. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. At www. You know what? Just Google it for yourself. Just Google it, you bastages. Helming. Breaking two? Electric boogaloo? Samurai cop? Army of darkness? Flash dance? <laughs> <laughs> We might destroy the planet if it's flashback. <laughs> Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host, Duncan McLeish, and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic, old-school horror favourites, as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The podcast Under the Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under the Stairs, signing off. Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in you. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of here. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this movie. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little popping history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How did be a you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. All right, I guess we can move on to our movies now, and we're going to start with Django Kill, If You Live, Shoot, from 1967.
directed by Giulio Questi, written by Franco Arcali, who is also known for doing the screenplay for Once Upon a Time in America. Giulio Questi, Maria del Carmen Martinez Roman, and uh, Benedetto Beneditti are also uh, credited for the writing here. And it stars uh, Thomas Milan, who is someone we're going to come back to in this series. And he's a pretty well-known spaghetti western actor in Italian. Well, he's not Italian, actually. He's a, he's a Cubano. He is uh, The Stranger. And some American films you might have seen him in are uh, Traffic, JFK, and Havana. So he, he has had a little bit of a career over here as well. Also starring Mary Lou Tolo as Flory, Pero Louie as Oaks, Milo Quesada as Bill Templar, Miguel Serrano as Indian, Francesco Sanz as Hagerman. We also have Angel Silva as one of the Indians, Sancho Garcia as Willie, Morella Pampili as a woman in town, Ray Lovelock, I think his first role, or one of his first roles as uh, Evan, and Roberto Carmadiel as Zorro, or Zorro, depending on what version of the film you watch, and uh, Patrizia Valturi as uh, Elizabeth Hagerman. And I just, wow, that's probably the worst yet I've done for reading uh, names. But uh, it starts out like a traditional spaghetti western, uh, I will say. Like, it, it gives you that sort of initial plot. Thomas Milan is part of a group of bandits. He's basically hired on as hired help for these uh, white bandits. They hire a bunch of Mexican laborers, and Thomas Milan is a half-breed. Uh, they basically ambush a uh, Wells Fargo uh, gold shipment, and then the white bandits turn on the Mexican bandits and shoot them all and bury them in a shallow grave, as you usually do with the Mexican help, right? And it's not really spelled out. Either he's brought back to life by these two wandering Indians, or he's just nursed back to health by these two wandering Indians. What was your interpretation of that, Daniel? Do you, do you think there's a mystical uh, element to this, or if, or is he just sort of nursed back to health? Not to not to jump ahead, but the the gold bullets and the mm-hmm. uh, the fact that uh, in a later scene there's a dude shooting at him and missing completely. There's absolutely a supernatural element that, that's sort of implied by this. Yeah, that's um, sort of what I got. And, and one thing that I don't know that I uh, expressed in the original Django podcast that we did was uh, just that it does feel like Django as this kind of avenging angel kind of like you know laying waste onto like assholes everywhere sort of thing yeah um and kind of having that in mind it was you know like like as this kind of general thing whereas the first film uh, the narrow film really has this sort of um specific idea of Django as this kind of character and uh, it kind of kind of grounds him in realism, but kind of kind of gives him that role. And then I saw this uh, right after and went, "My God, this is very much someone took that and then turned it up to eleven. And it made this, this explicit avenging angel kind of character. And to me, I don't I don't always want to like throw the supernatural in, but to me, this was very easy to interpret as a supernatural kind of like you know yeah avenging well, angel kind of film. Just for the record, uh, in case you weren't listening to the last podcast, this this isn't an actual Django film. This is one of those films that got retitled Django. I mean, this this was retitled over the director Giulio Questi's head. They they went over his head and retitled it on him, and he, he was not even a fan. even looking at the title card. I was kind of yeah. like, so it's Django Kill, and then underneath, if you live, shoot. Yeah, which which kind of implies that I didn't look up the history of it. It kind of means like the original title was If You Live, Shoot, and then. <laughs> Django well, Kill was like imposed upon it later on. Like it just seems that cheap. Yeah. Chintzy, you know? 
they 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 did retitle it as Django Kill. If you live, shoot. Strictly to uh, get more sales, of course. I think the original working title was Oro Hondo or something along those lines. So it's like gold, whatever Hondo is. I don't know what the fuck that means. But um, And then there was another title as well that was in Spanish. And I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. You know, uh, No one else wants to hear me say any more Spanish in this episode, I don't think. Yeah, probably, uh, probably for the best or not. Yeah, yeah. But... Yeah, uh, Questy was definitely not happy with uh, the retitling, and uh, Thomas Milan has even gone on record in interviews saying it was basically an insult to his movie to retitle it that. But it, it does sort of, as, as much as it's not a Django movie, it does sort of pick on that sort of element, like expands that idea of maybe this guy's supernatural, and it does kind of borrow just very barely kind of, again, from that sort of Ujimbo uh, plot where the stranger walks into town and there's different factions. This time there's three different factions that he's he's sort of uh, pinballing around between. Well, I mean, it kind of starts out with factions. I mean, it does it does kind of like it's interesting in the way that it reflects the original film, just in the sense that there are factions, and then like eventually towards the end, it kind of becomes this like almost personal drama. You mm-hmm. know? Uh, between you know, it really does turn into this guy, this this preacher, who we at first think is like probably you know, on the side of the angels, again, with the kind of angel-devil thing, mm-hmm. and then kind of becomes, you know, then we kind of learn, like, oh, no, he's, like, abusive towards his wife and, like, doesn't deserve any, yeah. you know, sympathy at all, and he ends up being the major villain of the piece. I mean, there's almost this, um, and this is this is something I'll come back to in For the Apocalypse, there's this kind of bifurcated structure, you know, there's this, mm-hmm. you, know, you kind of get the first half, and that ends at a certain point, um, basically when the kid dies, and then you yeah. get to the second half, you know. Yeah, man, I wish I had written a plot summary so that people who have not seen the movie know what I was talking about right now. <laughs> so you know, well, even even then, I think going into this, you're you're going to be surprised because, like I said, it, it starts with the sort of standard spaghetti western kind of setup where uh, the lone gun, gunfighter going after his old gang who turned on him for revenge, like very very standard kind of plot. But that ends very quickly. The The gang that turned on him goes into this town, and this is the town that the two Indians who uh, bring our stranger back to life say is the unhappy place. There's there's no word for it in their, in their, in their native language, and they don't know what the American word is. They just say, we call it the unhappy place. And the gang finds out really quick that it's the unhappy place because they get fucking slaughtered. The town, the townspeople just, they, they learn they have gold. Ah, we're going to fucking kill them. And they and they do like it goes fucking brutal really quick. One scene where a guy puts a gun up to his head and he pulls the trigger and it misfires, and you think, oh, take a breath of fresh air. He's not going to shoot him now. No, he just clicks again and shoots him this time, blows his head off. (laughs) I mean, I mean that that sequence is really really violent, and I mean honestly, like completely unexpected within the structure Mm -hmm. of the film. The idea that they just go like, well, fuck these guys, and then. Hang them all. The stranger, who I'll probably reference as Django at some point because yeah. I'll forget not to call him the stranger. But uh, the stranger, the pretty boy, um, <laughs> he, he wants to go uh, take him down. He wants to, you know, give him proper burials. And uh, the townspeople are like, yo, fuck that shit. Yeah. You know? And once, once they learn that the stranger has been giving these golden bullets for his revenge he's supposed to take on, on the gang, and they mm-hmm. dig some of these golden bullets out of the last gang member uh, who's still alive at that point. <laughs> and they very graphically do that as well. It's oh, very we- violent. I mean, there's, there's mm-hmm. a ton of like really interesting. I mean, you know, the, this kind of reflection on, 
the way that the the violence is reflected, you know, where, where we're kind of like looking at, you know, so often in, in uh, you know, kind of the traditional Western, you know, the, a gun goes off and then it's like, ah, and then the guy falls over. And the thing with the revisionist Westerns is they kind of made that much more explicit and you kind of had to watch them twitch a little bit. And this is this is almost like going even extended to that where like we're literally pulling these bullets out of these guys. Yeah. And then watch him die after we pull the bullets out, you know, which is, you know, it's still, you know, 1967 and it's still not, you know, graphic in a kind of modern horror movie sense or whatever. Yeah. But it's it's definitely affecting. I mean, it, it was very much on that, like, wow, that's 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 a long way to go for a, a sequence like that. You know? Yeah, for first time is very shocking. And I think that's one of the main points of this film. Um, it, it does have a kind of a disjointed structure. It's edited in a very strange way. Like you get these cut-ins of flashbacks. Sometimes mm. they're upside down very, very quickly. And like sometimes you have like two, three second shots that just cut in and out. Giulio Questi was a rebel in Italy during World War II fighting against the fascist government. And a lot of this, and this is the only Western he did, by the way. But uh, a lot of the imagery he put in this was directly influenced by the sort of stuff he saw uh, fighting the fascists in World War II. So a lot of the violence is kind of a reflection of that, like just how brutal and and frank it is. Uh, I'm, I don't think he ever saw anyone have their bullet bullets dug out of them quite in that that way, you know. Um, Probably but, not gold bullets either, because I don't know that even gold bullets, it's too soft a metal. I don't yeah. know that that's a thing, but, you know. Yeah. The imagery is sort of patterned after what he saw in World War II, uh, very thinly veiled and, and honestly not too strongly put into the actual plot and thrown in your face. The the villagers uh, in the in the town or the townspeople rather kind of represent the sort of lazy populace that let the fascists sort of just move in and take over their government. Essentially, is yep. what he's sort of commenting on there. Uh, I mean, we'll talk about uh, Mister Sorrow here or Zorro, depending on which version you see. Uh, <laughs> sure. He's very, very much depicted as this rich, spoiled, pampered fascist with his group of black shirts. In this case, uh, a gang of homosexual cowboy rapists all wearing black shirts. So I watched the film, and maybe I didn't pay enough attention. I completely missed the gay subtext. You did? And then I was reading about it, and I was like, there was gay subtext in that? may very well be that I was just like, I had a beer in my hand, and I just like, you know, wasn't thinking about it on that level, you know? Okay, well, I'm fucking super surprised because when you said the, I'm gonna love talking about this film, I thought, yeah, Daniel immediately saw the black shirts, and yeah, he's gonna want to talk about that. Questy never really sort of spelled out what he was saying by that. Like that's kind of the one point in 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 everything he sort of puts in this film that it's not really quite spelled out what he was saying. I mean, back in the day, <laughs> you're you're not gonna find much positive depictions of gays. Uh, no, no, not at all. Back no, no. Then. Um, but I don't think he was necessarily going for, oh, gays are evil or anything like that. Uh, Questy seemed kind of like, in my opinion, in this film, he seemed kind of really interested in just shocking the fuck out of everybody. Like he's trying to make like the anti-Western here. So instead of having a gang of like in any other Western, if there's any sort of implied rape at all, it's going to be a gang of heterosexual men raping a woman. And maybe like even an Indian woman or something along those lines, right? Oh, don't worry. We're going to talk about rape when we get to the the apocalypse. Yeah. I will talk about rape shortly. (laughs) But uh, I think he was just trying to shock people. Like he said said in interviews, he was trying to kind of shock 
the sort of more American audience for westerns, mm-hmm. like try to throw everything well, on, on its, its head. It's sort of it's sort of a western for people that hate westerns. It's sort yeah. of a, a it's using. I mean, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest. Watching this, I don't process it as a western. I process it as this kind of supernatural ghost story that happens to be set in the old it's west. It's more of a it's know. more of a gothic horror, isn't it? Yeah, it very much. I mean, it, it really is. And then, and then it kind of becomes a relationship drama. It becomes the uh, the story of the stranger and the uh, the kid who then dies. Who the, and then kind of becomes about like kind of approaching uh, the preacher and kind of dealing with sorrow and and all the. It becomes kind of an interpersonal drama. I mean, there is this sense of where I kind of I did want to kind of rewatch it because I watched it once, and sometimes I'll watch these twice to kind of you know. Get a get a kind of second like view of it, but this was really one where I watched it once, and I was kind of like, I feel like there there are buried levels to this. There that there is some metaphor that I'm missing that he's yeah. that he's like trying to get at. But I don't really care because for me, I was I found the interpersonal relationships compelling. Um, mm-hmm. I would like to talk about the women a little bit, if that's okay. Yeah, we have two women in the film. <laughs> you know, yeah, of course. <laughs> But but like that's one more that I was expecting to have. So I'm, mm-hmm, yeah. I'm, you know, to a certain degree, it's like yeah, great. You know, and at first I didn't even realize there were two different characters. I thought there was some supernatural thing going on, and you were kept, because you see the um, the wife of the preacher kind of in the in the jail, and I thought yeah. like oh, it's some like magical mystical thing because I assumed there's only one woman in the film. <laughs> um, you know, so you know, my apologies, but you've got Flory who is uh, kind of this really a villain character in her own way. I mean, she, she's, she's seeking the gold. She's seeking this, uh, I mean, she's seeking the wealth. She's, she's in, in every way just as much a bastard as everybody else in the film, you know? Yeah. And then later on when we, uh, when we are kind of introduced to uh, just the woman. Yeah, the woman, a, woman in yeah, town, I think. is Woman in town, yeah, yeah. When we are introduced to her, you know, there, there's this warmth that comes from that. And then you find out, well, she's married to this preacher who is locking her away and um, just emotionally and probably physically abusive to her and all that sort of thing. So there really is this kind of like feminist reading of this that, that I think is, is fascinating. You know? Yeah, like the, the women in this both kind of, they almost kind of play Barbara Steele's performances in a lot of her films, like a lot of the horrors she did with uh, Mario Bava and stuff in this period, where you had either the, the insane woman who was being persecuted in some way, or you have the scheming bitch who's trying to kill whoever gets in her way as long as she can get the money, the inheritance, whatever it is, right? So the... Well, hold on. Are we talking about a Madonna horror complex? Yeah, exactly, is, is basically what it is. So, yeah, you've got Flory, who is actually pretty much done up like Barbara Steele would be, like the black hair and all that stuff. Uh, she's very, very scheming. And then, of course, you have the woman in town who is basically crazy she's got the wild hair she's locked up in her room she's abused and yeah i I was just watching this and i was like that's right from a mario bava film if there if i ever saw something from mario bava i mean it it very much feels like a barbara Steele picture at that in those points and and you can kind of look at it if you sort of look at it through that lens some of these characters start falling into place uh like they would in those films because usually the villains in those films are aristocratic characters, and usually it's some lone stranger, some acquaintance of the family or something like that comes into the picture and is this sort of de facto hero. Although a lot of those films end even worse than this film does for pretty much everybody, but that's sort of beside the point. Yeah, it, it has this really 
sort of influence of like gothic horror of, of the time from Italy that uh, pretty pretty prevalent. I mean, almost the spaghetti western trappings are almost just kind of fairly there, almost just kind of a sweet paint job on top of this like gothic horror. Yeah, I mean, it really is just it's just used as a setting. You know? mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, what I'm learning is we need to throw some Mario Va- Mario Bava on the uh, the list to, to watch. So you oh yeah know. yeah. I found the film, honestly, I found the film really fascinating watching it. And then once it was kind of over, it kind of left my head a little bit. Mm-hmm. And um, kind of, kind of, it was a kind of a once through. I would like to revisit it, but it didn't stick with me in the way that, like, maybe I would want a film like this to stick with me. And I think that's partly just, it feels a little bit surface level. Even though the symbolism is there, it doesn't feel like I'm missing something by just kind of watching it once and letting it like enjoying it and letting it kind of pass by me, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's because none of the characters really grab me. And I think that's also, but I think that's the strength of the film because it really is kind of playing on these archetypes and it's playing on this like supernatural element. Even if you interpret the film so that the, the, the stranger isn't a like supernatural being, it's definitely playing on some of these horror tropes. It's playing on those sorts of ideas. And, um, you know, that's very much not working on a uh, detailed character-based level. Honestly, Milan here as the lead, he's actually downplaying from what he usually does. Like, he, he he's a method actor. He can he can go pretty goddamn big when he wants to. He's perfectly fine in the film. I mean, I, I, I like, I enjoy him in the film. It feels like a very modernistic performance in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. But it also feels like a, I mean, you know, you say he's holding back. It does feel subdued. It feels like kind of slightly, I don't want to say he feels like he's slumming it because that's not the impression. But it feels no. like he could do more, but he's not. You know, it feels. It feels. Yeah, like, I mean, I, and he I, feels a little bit like a pretty boy. And I'm sorry, the headband is distracting. The headband yeah. is a distracting. <laughs> well, if you took the headband away, he kind of looks like Han Solo before there was a Han Solo. He he kind of he does. I I kept looking at him, and I um I kind of had this moment where I kept thinking of him as uh, I don't know if you watched the TV show Psych. Um, no, I know it's on the USA Network, but he kind of looks like the lead in Psych. It's not obvious, but just in terms of his mannerisms and kind of his attitude, it definitely was distracting enough to where I kind of felt like, you know, he's going to start, like, doing psychic powers, fake psychic powers for a while. You know? <laughs> like, it, it felt, it, it kind of felt that way for me. And I, I hate that, like, that was my reference, but it was, he's a little bit of that kind of, he's a little bit of a, a pretty boy, a modern actor. And, um, mm-hmm. again, we'll talk about that a little bit when we get to Four of the Apocalypse, because I have yeah, some... Yeah. Uh, so definitely things to say about the the lead in that, but um, you don't trust yeah. the hooks. But uh, but yeah, I think the biggest performances here come from Oaks, who was the gang leader, and he's dead before the movie even gets halfway through. So sure. uh, that's immediately that's immediately gone. And then the other one is uh, Sorrow, and yeah. really he's only in a couple pieces, and most notably where he's talking to his fucking parrot. Who? <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, Sorrow's kind of got the Lee Marvin role in this, right? You know, he's kind of got yeah. the, the kind of big, you know, like bold villain kind of thing. I mean, he's great. I, I really enjoy that performance. It's a great kind of villain performance. It just doesn't stick with me. But yeah, but that's, that's kind of. But but Daniel, if you only understood how much he appreciates his muchachos. <laughs> Fair, enough. Fair enough. Yeah, I should just mention that there there are a couple pieces here that kind of show the cheapness of the film. At the same time, like some of the effects are really well done, and then sometimes you get these scenes that really take you out of it. The saloon singing sequence, where she's obviously not singing that song at all, oh, like God, the dubbing yeah. is so bad, and the song sounds like something from a '40s nightclub that you would hear, like in a noir or something like that. Right? Like it doesn't feel period at all. 
well, that to me, I it almost like so so yeah. It doesn't it doesn't sound like it's coming from her. Yeah. At all, like like it it feels very different. I almost interpreted that as a like um, a tone piece, like the fact that it's kind of coming from noir because you know I don't know if anybody noticed during our noir series, but I fucking love noir, you know. So <laughs> um, I almost interpreted that as a, a a statement of tone, a statement of like this is the kind of thing we're going for. And so I think that noir and spaghetti western kind of fit together because they do have this kind of this darkness, this black comedy, and they also have this kind of like anybody is liable to die at any moment. Yeah, yeah, and and you and usually usually have the one man pitted against an impossible situation where everyone's against them. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. multiple multiple factions kind of playing against each other. And Mm -hmm. um, oh wait. Are we eventually going to cover Bad Day at Black Rock, which is the ultimate, you know... Yes, mixing of Western and noir, yeah. 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 We're definitely going to do that. No, we'll never cover that. It's fine. Don't worry. Yeah. I I would also mention the, uh, early on, the the little hat joke, even though this movie is mostly kind of just, like, really brutal and and nasty throughout the most part. There's that little, little visual joke right at the beginning there where... He, he goes in to kill uh, Oaks and take his revenge on Oaks' hold up in the store there. And it's a clothing store. And mm-hmm. he's peeking up on the hat rack. And every time he peeks up, his head goes under one of the hats on the hat rack. So it looks like he's wearing oh, a fucking hat. Yeah, that was, that's an amazing little sequence. I mean, yeah. and, that's, and that's also kind of one of those, like, it's a visual joke, but it also feels very, like, ghost story, right? Mm-hmm. You know? And that's that. I mean, just looking at that sequence. I mean, that sequence where he's killing Oaks, where he, you know, he ends up killing Oaks, where it feels like there's a supernatural element because, like, yeah. like, like, um, you know, kind of feeding into the hats, and then, you know, he's standing there point blank range, and the guy shoots him four times and, and misses, you know, that sort of thing. Like, yeah. there's a definite supernatural interpretation of that that I think is is kind of unavoidable. This is one of the scenes that kind of takes me out of it, and I kind of wish it was chopped from it. Like, I think one of the biggest problems of this film is it's way too long. Like, it, it could have used a, a half hour chopped out of it. I oh, think. yeah, this is an hours. hour and, what, an hour and 50 minutes long or something? You know, yeah. at least 20 minutes can be cut out of this, yeah. Yeah, what did you... This And actually, this is one of the sequences I kind of wish was cut out of it, but what did you think of the... Uh, where they take him back and they're, uh, they're torturing him and they got him strung up like Jesus and they're bringing, like, iguanas and vampire bats, supposedly... To, to to torture him with and uh, some of these shots you can visibly see someone's fingers holding the animal in place so it doesn't run out of the shot <laughs> I'm just I'm just sitting there I was watching and I'm like oh wait was this Italy and was it 1967 yeah yeah like it, it's this very kind of avant-garde I mean I don't know like that sort of thing doesn't bother me just because it's so weird and abstract that it just like I welcome it in almost any film you know sort of thing but I mean there's very clearly this sense of like padding for time for, mm-hmm. for, for those sorts of things there's no reason to go to that regard you could have just like hit him a couple of times and then faded to black and then kind of come up and you know just moved on with your story it does feel long it feels longer than it has to be but I don't mind it you know it's kind of mm-hmm. like okay yeah I kind of like to look luxuriating in the the world that the film had a little bit. You know, that, that's kind of my big picture opinion on the on the length. But definitely, if you're doing a spaghetti western and you're longer than like an hour and forty minutes, you got to be Sergio Leone. That's kind of yeah, funny. pretty much. You know, it's it's got to be either ninety minutes or one hundred and fifty minutes. It's one or the other. Mm-hmm. Like you can't you can't do anything in between, or else you know, fuck off. Yeah. You know? 
I, I think where I fall in that scene, as much as I didn't like it, I'm just happy to see an Italian film where animals weren't murdered on screen for real. You know, <laughs> that, that's always refreshing. Yeah, yeah. Um, I get that. So this film is uh, again going to for the apocalypse. There's a moment of that, you know. So. Yeah, yeah. So the box office for this was 14 million in Spain, 14.5 million. So it, it actually did very well, but it started off on shaky grounds. Uh, there's several cuts of this out there. This film was confiscated after the first week by the Italian court and edited down by 22 minutes and then re-released because they felt that uh, the movie was too shocking and it would lead to people becoming violent and, uh, you know, because, you know... <laughs> If, if you so watch the movie, they didn't. They didn't cut the twenty-two minutes that we might cut. They cut. They cut a good twenty-two minutes. Yeah. Also, it was chopped down for the UK by ninety minutes, or down to ninety minutes, not by ninety. Okay. Minutes. Jesus Christ! <laughs> I was yeah. like, so there's like a fifty-five minute cut of this film out there. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, it was later restored. Of course, um, this this was a very chopped apart film at its time, and uh, Questy sort of had a. Uh, reputation at the time going as being kind of a shocking filmmaker. He started in documentaries before he moved to feature films, and he uh, did some experimental kind of surrealist stuff that you can kind of see starting off here in this film. So Alex Cox, who is uh, probably best known for doing Repo Man, remade this film in 1986 and called it Straight to Hell, which I kind of want to see now. I've never seen that one, so... Uh, oh, well, we, we need to put that on our list and watch it, yeah, because yeah. I would... I mean... <laughs> Director of Repo Man remade this film as fascinating as that. It, like, yes, no, I don't, I don't right. care. We'll do that. The soundtrack was done by Ivan Vandor. Uh, good luck finding it anywhere. I don't think it was actually officially released, but I did find a copy of it for uh, the podcast. But uh, that opening song, even the opening song is kind of off. Tonally, it's kind of off. Some of the chord progressions go along, go a little too long. Where they stick it in the film kind of comes in weird places sometimes where they repeat the theme. I mean, I mean the film not to not to I mean, I enjoyed the film, but it kind of feels like a like a first draft kind of amateur effort a little bit. Yeah. It, it feels a little bit kind of like people who didn't quite know how to do what they were doing were doing this. And I and I think that's kind of one of the strengths of the film is that it it doesn't get in its own way. It kind of it kind of just is what it is. Yeah. You know, as much as I enjoy the film it doesn't feel like really a quite fully professional effort. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You want to get this on DVD or Blu-ray? Blue Underground released the DVD in 2004 and Blu-ray version in 2012. Those are probably your best options. It's probably on Amazon Prime or something too, is it? Do you know? Yep. Um, That's how I watched it because for some obscure reason, I'm still an Amazon Prime member. They bill me once a year and then I go, fuck, I forgot to cancel that. And then I have access to all the Amazon Prime stuff for the year. That's how they get you because they only bill you once a year. Um, yeah, no, um, this was on Amazon Prime. It's a, I mean, it's a beautiful print. Both this, I'll just say now, both this and For the Apocalypse are on Amazon Prime. They look both look gorgeous, and uh, they both have subtitles, which is something that I uh, definitely recommend for watching these. Nice to watch them with subtitles. Okay, so I think I think we both agree though. This is worth seeing. Like this is kind of had a reputation of being like one of those kind of the one the one spaghetti western that you never heard about that you get to see because it's kind of shocking and definitely very original of its of its genre. And uh, I agree with that. I think some people are going to probably be put off by the length and maybe the lack of sort of hard narrative. But um, I think it's definitely worth checking out, especially if you're a film nerd. It's it's just it's just it's, an experience. Yeah. As someone who isn't a huge horror fan. I think it's most interesting for its horror elements. Mm-hmm. You know, 
Like that's a, for, for me, that's, that's the, like, it's not for, for me, it's not like I watch this as a Western fan or as a film fan and go, Oh, this is a must see for me. It's, it's for the kind of combination of the Western genre with the horror elements that, that makes it interesting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then the, the kind of second half, there's some really interesting kind of character dynamics kind of going on. But yeah, this is, I mean, it's worth seeing if, if what we've, I kind of say this all the time. If what we've said sounds interesting, it's probably worth watching. But um, I don't. I don't know that I would say. I don't know that I would recommend this to people, like as a you know as a, well, as a spaghetti western. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I definitely wouldn't say. Oh, you want to see spaghetti westerns? Here's the first one you should watch. Right, right. This, this yeah. is this is this is a little bit of a deep cut. You know. Yeah, like, yeah. This is after you've watched all the uh, Leone stuff and. Uh, all the Corbucci stuff, or, and, or even, or even like just as a casual, like, like kind of a film fan, like like yeah. as, as a movie. I don't even know that I would recommend this. Like, oh, you're a cinema fan, you should check this out. It's a little bit kind of off to the side. You know, mm-hmm. that, you know, it feels like a very particular kind of pleasure. It feels like something that I would really recommend only to people that I felt like really were gonna like get something out of this. Like, I got something out of this, but it, it didn't feel like it was. It doesn't feel necessary. If you are interested in kind of supernatural interpretations of the Western, that's the that's the people that I think really should watch this. So, mm-hmm. yeah, 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 great. <laughs> All right, Paul's here. How you doing, sir? Hi, I'm ready to go. Let's do this and kick some ass. Yeah, I, I I'm glad you actually at least made it for the Fulci. Uh, yeah, well, the, the the three of Purgatory can do the four of the Apocalypse now. Yeah. And yeah. since and since you're here now as well, uh, there was a question posed for Movie God. Movie God. Mm-hmm. Uh, by, by Jack Graham, and uh, he gives you, we already answered this one uh, ourselves, but he gives this uh, question. You have to pick between two people. One of them you have to eliminate. Would you eliminate Ray Harryhausen or Jim Henson? Hmm. I guess, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Um, fuck it. I can't live without Fraggles. Harryhausen. <laughs> I'm killing the Harryhausen. <laughs> I mean, I'm not thinking about, I just woke up. I can't think about this too hard. But no, it's, uh, I think, what is it? Henson's actually been in a couple of different, has his hand in a couple actual things that I, I remember really enjoying growing up, and it wasn't just like fraggles and shit, so, oh, I'll kill Henson, why the hell not? Everybody, or Harryhausen, but do you, do you guys, I'm a, I'm a, part of me is assuming he didn't fare too well when you guys picked? Um, I, I picked to keep Harryhausen, and yep. Daniel picked Henson to keep. Ahaha, Henson's the winner! <laughs> two, two to one, baby. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Harry. I, I, I love. Actually, I really love that logic of. I love the fucking Fraggles. So fuck Harryhausen. That, exactly. That's and, that's and that, that that's oh, that's almost precisely the logic I use. Although it wasn't the Fraggles. Although I grew up with the Fraggles, but it was yeah. very much like Hanson means more. So fuck Harryhausen. That exactly. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> the Fraggle Rock was like the first show with a black metal logo. That cryptic yeah. kind of like, ah, I'm like, whoa, look at that. Oh yeah, but no, definitely, the Fraggles is just something I, I don't think I could, I, I don't think I could do without. I'll restate this just for you, Paul. Um, you know, the listeners have already heard this, but my wife fucking loves Jim Henson and the Fraggles and, and everything, and so like, mm-hmm. I, 
There's an, there was no realistic way I was killing Jim Henson. Like it just it wasn't. Is, gonna I just I cannot do this. This is not happening today. It's yeah, one of those deals. Just, just because I love my wife, I have to keep the fraggles. Like there I have to keep them. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right. All right. Uh, I guess we can move on to the next film then. Um, we're going to be talking about For the Apocalypse from 1975. Four outcasts with a single purpose, survival. Dubby Preston, professional card sharp. Clem, the drunk. Bunny, a cheap prostitute. And Butt, the crazy. crosses with that of another outcast, Chaco, a professional killer. You see how Chaco shoots? dresser and polite as you please finds himself torn between the will to survive and revenge this is the second time i swear it someday i'm gonna kill you clem his fool's paradise became a hell bunny she discovered love for the first time but fate was to cheat her of her happiness. Dobby, I need not you. Dobby! Look over there, Dobby! But he lived in a world of dreams that became a nightmare. Ah, oh, Sheriff Taylor died by a cliff's call, one of his own horses. I could kill you right now, but I won't. I want you to die slowly. Keep it as a souvenir. 
Directed by Lucio Fulci, written by Inio Di Consini, based on stories by Bret Hart, not the pro wrestler, by the way. Uh, two of his stories, The Luck of Roaring Camp and The Outcasts of Poker Flat. This is starring Fabio Testi, who is also a very well-known Italian actor. He's probably, if to say that uh, Franco Nero is sort of the George Clooney of his day, Fabio Testi's kind of the uh, Brad Pitt of his day, sort of. Lynn Frederick as uh, Emmanuel Bunny O'Neill. Michael J. Pollard as Klim, who's a very famous character actor. You'll you'll have seen this guy in something, guaranteed. You'll you'll Mm -hmm. know his face. Uh, Harry Baird as Bud. Uh, Aldolfo (laughs) Lazaretti as Reverend Sullivan. Bruno Corazzari as Lemmy. Uh, Gio, fuck it. Fuck the rest of my own character. No, you're uh, doing it, damn it. No, Thomas Milan is Chacho, and that's it. <laughs> There's no other cast members. This is an interesting one. Uh, this is, I think this was Fulci's first foray into Spaghetti Westerns. He did, like, one or two of them. I think this is his first foray into that. And this is actually kind of his first foray into, like, really gory violence as well. Like, before, before then, he really didn't go into that. This sort of set the motifs for his uh, horror movies that he would be later known for. And this is basically is about a group of different outlaws, drifters, who are brought together after the town they are all staying in uh, decides to get up at the... Uh, I guess they're kind of coded as Mormons, although they don't sp- specifically say, but it's set in Utah, so you can kind of think, yeah, mm. Mormons. And basically they get tired of the uh, debauchery and gambling in their town. So mm. over one night they tell the sheriff to look the other fucking way, Anyone in the jail gets spared, but anyone else outside in the streets gets killed. So they basically mm-hmm. rise up and murder all the ne'er-do-wells in town. And then the next day, our four uh, heroes are released and sent packing on their way in a wagon. And they go through the desert, a uh, 200-mile uh, desert they're, they're going across, apparently. They run into, unfortunately for them, uh, Thomas Milan's character as Chacho and... He leads them down a path of depravity and violence and hallucinations. And, yeah, that's kind of all you really need to know as a sort of a basic synopsis of this. Um, Paul, since you jumped in here, uh, what are your sort of initial thoughts on this one? Yeah, I don't know. This one was weird because it really just it gave you a lot of time, unlike, let's say, Django, to really sink into other characters more so than just the star, if you know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. which is interesting. But I love the beginning of the film. I mean, the film just, it doesn't waste your time. The film just kits right into it, um, and it gives you a surreal feeling as the sheriff just eats his supper, and it's the, the and then, you know, you know he, he's not exceedingly happy about it. You can kind of tell he's half pissed off when he's doing it, but he's just he's just eating his thing. He's like, this Okay, I'm trying trying not to realize that people are getting completely murdered outside, but we're good. And and at the beginning of the film in the town cleaning the flotsam and jetsam is a is a great is a great part of the film. I was like, Oh, I can't believe I haven't watched this film before once that was going on. I was actually surprised because they were freaking out in the jail cell. And I don't actually remember him saying, like, you know, you better shut up because the only reason you're living right now is because of me. So just pipe down. His silence in the film while he was eating and just stuff, all the chaos was going off, and they were freaking out in the jail. It was just 
That was pretty deep. It's pretty good. Yeah. Overall, overall, the film is very effective. And and yeah, and the baby the baby faced lead uh, is just oh, definitely cool. something. Yeah, I was not expecting that at first. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, okay, that's that's different. He is a beautiful man, as you said about Franco. There you go. Yeah, uh, Daniel, your sort of initial thoughts on this? I really feel myself responding to this film. It's uh, hugely episodic. Again, bifurcated. You can kind of tell, like, oh, this is two short stories that it kind of get wandered into. But it's also uh, this, you know, it's it's more complex than that because it, they have kind of layered in this Chaco's kind of story across the two, and there are kind of uh, other meetings and other kind of places they go. So it it doesn't feel quite as obvious, you know. If I didn't know it was built out around two short stories, I wouldn't have necessarily um, connected with that. I really love this film. I, I um, will definitely be revisiting this, looking towards the best of the year um, kind of list. Not hugely complex, but I really love, I think for me what what drew me to it was, you know, you tell me the title, I mean, you know, so <laughs> behind the scenes moment here. Lee kind of gives me a list of titles sometimes, and, you know, I don't, I just kind of look it up and watch it. Like, I don't have any, mm. like, and so for me, the and then I knew it was Fulci. So for me, I'm like, oh, for the apocalypse, that's going to be about some, like, western town that's invaded by four horsemen of the apocalypse sort of thing. You know, like, that's that's what this story is going to be from the title and from the, you know, like, the kind of the, the priestess. And it's not that at all. What it is is it's four people kind of in the wilderness, which is kind of this post-apocalyptic world in a, in a very real way. Um, where you're without the kind of vestiges of civilization. And so much about the Western as a genre is about this kind of conflict between kind of the frontier and about, like, quote-unquote civilization and, and what is meaningful and what, what do people actually do. And this film confronts that really directly and really in this very overt way, which I found really fascinating. They get picked off one by one as, yeah. as the film goes on. And... Um, the way that that happens, I think, is is also really interesting because it is kind of about who these people are versus something that's kind of done to them. You know, yeah. there's no, like, kind of sense of outside violence. It's very much about, like, the decisions they make lead to their ends in some really interesting ways. The violence works for me. The blood, the gore. Um, I really liked the, the goriness of this. I really, particularly uh, when you get to the kind of cannibalism sequence, which is not, you know, it's faulty, so it wasn't unexpected for me. Like, oh, yeah, no, clearly. Dude comes back, he's like, look, you got a big piece of meat. Oh, yeah, you just killed it. You, you weren't eating that guy. There's no there's no question for that for me. It goes to some really dark places. I definitely want to talk about the rape, because I think that's a, a really interesting element in the film. Yeah, talk slowly about it. <laughs> I to throw, I've been silent for too damn long. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll talk about it later. But um, overall, I really liked the film. I think it's fascinating, and uh, I'm definitely going to be revisiting it for the end of the year. So you know, apologies. I, I know I kind of talked a lot. I had I had a I have a lot to say. No good, because I don't the film. So you know. <laughs> yeah, this is um, like you said. It, it it is kind of episodic in a way, like because essentially it is made from two short stories, but it feels like. There's maybe several little short stories here because you get the initial. They run out of town. They uh, they run into this uh, traveling convoy of uh, Christians from uh, I guess immigrated from 
Switzerland, was it? Or Sweden or one Sweden. of those? Yeah, I think Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. yeah. So they, they run into them, and that's where uh, Fabio Testi and uh, Lynn Frederick first sort of lie about being married just to avoid any sort of complications along the way, you know, between uh, what, what are you what are you two young people doing wandering around together if you ain't married, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, we're married, uh, clearly, you know. Yeah. Obviously. And then in a way, they over the course of the film, they really do sort of become married in, in, in a sort of, in a, in a way, anyway, in an essence. So they, they hit the Christian missionary missionaries or whatever they are. Uh, then they run into Chacho, and they quickly learn, although at first he seems like, although he's kind of shifty, he's, you know, useful. Uh, mm. they, they, they quickly learn what he's all about, and he leaves them to die in the desert, and they basically, the rest of their journey is getting out of the desert and them all sort of dying off as they do. Mm-hmm. Uh until the final kind of conflict between Testy and uh, uh, Chacho, uh, Thomas Malone's character. Um, Fulci, it's kind of weird because going into this, like knowing Fulci's other films where he doesn't really focus on story and character all that much, where he's much more about the visuals and uh, about shocking you with things, kind of turns uh, turns it on its head here. Like you're kind of thrown off seeing, wow, he's actually paying attention to character development here. He's actually interested mm-hmm. in the relationship between his characters. He's got excellent fucking actors portraying these characters. Um, I mean, he could have hired Bob for something, but... Yeah. Uh, Michael J. Pollard is fucking amazing in this film. Like, I, I would argue that the film actually kind of drops off in quality quite a bit after he dies in this film. Uh, once his character leaves, uh, I mean, everyone else is still pretty good in this, but for me, he, he had the best performance as this just the most likable, deplorable drunk you can think of. <laughs> well, like the the, like the deplorable drunk in a in a western. I mean, that takes back. I mean, that was a cliche when when Ford made Stagecoach. Mm-hmm. You know, in '39, that was already uh, a cliche. And this guy could have very easily been just another line of Western drunks, and yet is completely humanized within the film. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what keeps drawing me, keeps me interested in this film, is how human and how social and how it really is built on these kind of character relationships. And in a way that we don't think of Fulci, and we think, oh, look at the like dynamics of the characters here. I mean, this this seems uncharacteristic for Fulci, and I wonder, I mean, what I really want to do is go and read the short stories and see mm-hmm. how much of this is in the short stories because I I did not, you know, dig into that because I definitely, as soon as I started watching this, I'm like, holy fuck, I want to read these short stories and see what was... I'm, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but I'm guessing in neither of these stories does it involve someone having his buttocks removed to be eaten. <laughs> there there are certainly know. elements you that feel know. very faulty. There are certainly elements where it's like, oh, yeah, no, 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 that was not the original. You know? yeah. Although, you know, maybe Fulci saw that and went like, and now I'm going to make a career out of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Fulci could have been like, well, that time, that place, Donner Party, eating people, throw it in. Yeah, I'm. That, that's very much what I was kind of getting out of it. Like Manifest the, Destiny with yeah, some uh, <laughs> human chicken fingers added, too. Yeah, well, I mean... Uh, Chacho leaves these guys with nothing. Like he just leaves them mm-hmm. to die in the desert, and it's only through their determination and the friendship that they kind of mm-hmm. build, like in their little loosely thrown together gang, mm-hmm. that they manage to even make it out of the desert in some sort of semblance of uh, <laughs> of alive. So, I mean, the fact that it resorts to cannibalism 
uh, isn't surprising. It's it's actually kind of expected in well, a way. Well, I mean, for for me, it, you know, I mean, it, it connects to like the zombie movie thing. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it's hard it's hard to not kind of say like, look, we're. I mean, I almost I almost connect this to the road, um, which I never saw mm-hmm. the movie, but I read the book. You know, part of it was filmed in Pennsylvania. Yeah. Movie. Yeah, it connects me to that, to, to the kind of, like, you think about how dark that um, book is, and you think about how, oh, we got these roving bands of cannibals, we got all this kind of stuff, we've got, like, basically this, like, slow kind of torturous, and I think it does uh, connect to this idea of the apocalypse, to this, like, kind of post-nuclear winter thing. I mean, it's it's hard for me not to see this as, you know, even though it's, it's set in the Old West, it's not really set in the Old West, you know? It's about this sort of like, what do we do when the bonds of the civilization have left us, and we are um, left in this situation where all we have is each other in this tiny band. Well, and this what, is, I mean, this this could this be set anywhere, as you were saying. This idea, and it has been in other films. Obviously, they've other films have approached this. I mean, even even with more, technically speaking, um, what well, the the flesh the. The flesh, the um, and the devil. Uh, and the world, yeah, the flesh, and the devil. The world, yeah. the flesh, the devil. Same kind of concept. What happens when it's just us, and how do we rebuild that kind of? What idea. happens when people stop being fake and start being real? The real yeah. world. <laughs> the real <laughs> world. Eighteen seventy-three. That's what. I just remember that her screaming. Can you pick up the phone from that commercial? <laughs> but uh, yeah, just I mean, I mean, we've seen it before. I mean, even in more you know traditional cheesy titles, you know, Last Woman on Earth or Last Man on Earth, and this and that. But that's it's it's interesting what happens when you get forced to be in that situation and rebuild. And then obviously, well, just well, like and, the, and the line I said before, is someone stuck in the middle. No matter where they run, they can't end up getting shit on their shoes. So, I mean, it yes. just they're in a bad yeah, yeah. spot. I mean, I mean, it's it's very much that sort of. I mean, again, both of these films, and I and I really appreciate Lee, you you kind of recommending we do this together. But both of these, neither of these, really feel like a western to me. Mm-mm. You know, they no. they feel. I mean, even though they're they're kind of set in the they're kind of set in the setting. Mm-hmm. Tonally, this this is very much. I mean, it, it's kind of part soap opera because it's got the relationship kind of going on and the the kind of <laughs> romance building, which. It's almost a romance of necessity, and it's almost like you kind of the actors sell it definitely. Like I'm not trying to like belittle that. Um, I actually really like the relationship that built between these two. Um, I think they're charming as fuck from the first time they talk to each other. Personally, I think there's some really interesting um, dynamics going on. But you see kind of that going on. You see they kind of join this little community. There are four of them. They're on the wagon, and they lose the wagon. They meet up with Chaco, who ends up being a total douchebag. There's the torture scene, which, you know, is amazing because, like, it really feels like you don't know what's going to happen. Like, yeah. For me, I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, without any knowledge of what's happening in this film, anything could happen from that point forward, which I, I think is uh, one of the triumphs of the film. Uh, once you kind of get past that and then, like, you kind of think, oh, it's going to kind of become this revenge picture... And then it's not, I mean, it kind of eventually becomes that, but not really. It's really kind of about, they're just they're just trying to survive. And, and the fact that they're trying to survive in this, like, hellhole environment, that's what makes it feel like this kind of post-apocalyptic movie, and the title just, just sells yeah. it that. Like, I can't imagine that they weren't thinking of nuclear winter at some point. 
while they were making this film. It's an incredibly rich film, thematically, visually, performance-wise, the writing. I mean, it's a little bit of a mess. I mean, you know, when we get to the miners' camp and you get to, uh, you know, there's this group of miners and they're basically like, yeah, we're just here, we're just going to mine, we're going to do our thing, we don't really give a shit about anything. And then suddenly there's this woman and there's this baby that's being born and Mm -hmm. they kind of come together. The baby being born is what forces them to form a community there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and I mean that was really tense. That was a tense. Thing. That was a tense moment. I didn't know what was going on when I watched it at first with the miners' camp. The miners' camp actually gave me more tension than the torture scene. I thought they were going to do something too because I mean initially you get some of the key characters that they show there talking about how they were you know they had a bunch of like bad relationships with women and stuff and they spurn them and and yeah we're we're all a bunch of men hanging out in this miners camp and we don't let other people in here we don't let women in here especially and and then basically so, basically these guys are reddit like you know <laughs> but uh yeah and then oh no they actually you know the the woman and her plight and the the birth mm-hmm. of the child kind of melts their hearts i guess yeah and, yeah i mean don't, don't just because they're all dressed in almost like you know all these crazy ass black dirty coal mining hides and all this stuff and they actually kind of look pretty intimidating all rough and tumbly and they actually look like a bunch of bad dudes I I didn't know what they were going to do at first and then it turns out they're all decent guys and and like they took on one of the biggest challenges in the world by the end of the movie for the for uh, for Stubby you know it's that's that's pretty pretty crazy and they're all involved. They all, all wanted to give gifts and check out the baby, and they're all happy. It's like this is crazy. I love this. They're yes. like they're like they're like betting. I mean, there is this long sequence where mm-hmm. they're betting on like, oh, is it a boy or a girl? Boy or is girl. it you know, like all, all that sort of? They've got all these kind of details. Oh, it'll cry in the first ten minutes, or you know, whatever. Like I don't remember all the details, but and then like once oh the baby's born and the mother dies, they just completely like they don't care anymore. They're just like yeah, just take it like it's it's for the kid. And yeah. um, that that's how that's how societies are born, where we bond together over a common good. And I I don't want to say it's profound because it's not like they'll look at how amazing an insight that is. But for a film like this, you know, for a film directed by Lucio Fulci, <laughs> there is a neat contrast there between that community and the community I depicted at the beginning of the film that kills all the ne'er-do-wells in the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Their their answer to the common good in society is to murder all the people they don't like. In and in, in the miners' camp, it's no. We come around and support the weaker and the unprotected, and you know, build a community in that regards instead. The the religious conservative assholes. They're like you know, they're very concerned with their image, and they're you know, like oh, we don't want a card sharp in our in our town. We don't want whores in our town. Like get the fuck out. And you know, it is it is like I mean, I'm an atheist. I know I know Lee, you're an atheist, and but the Christian message is, you know, like all are welcome in in Christ's tent, you know, sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that there is this sense of like these miners are behaving more in this Christ-like way than anyone who would, you know, attempt to. Well, they're um, in, in you know, the minor the miners. You hear them talk about some of them talk about their past. They're actually, I mean, if you if you look at this in a religious tone, and it's interesting too because Fulci was also an atheist. Mm-hmm. Um, but the miners are confessed sinners. Like they are confessed sinners who are still putting this child's welfare before their own uh, vices. Mm-hmm. It's all about empathy, right? Like I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, and, and the whole film kind of keeps coming back to that. I mean, you have this long sequence uh, where they're um, even even after um, 
our, our African American friend uh, kind of goes off and, and uh, kind of goes off the deep end. Um, our two leads are still like really empathetic towards him. Oh, he will be happier here with his delusions, he's good. and he, yeah. he won't hurt anybody, and he'll he'll have food to eat and all that sort of thing. They're they're still very supportive of that. They're still empathetic to that, even though they don't want to be around him anymore for for obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. It was yeah, they didn't have the hunt him with sticks moment. They were like, you know what, we're good. He's good. Let's move on. Yeah, let's, yeah, let's do there's this. this. There's this idea of like life boat rules that you see from um, so many people. Like you know, oh, there are four people in a lifeboat, and not all of us can live, and so therefore, you know, you, you make this authoritarian impulse, and then somebody has to die, and all that sort of thing. You know, this isn't um, the Highlander. This is this isn't that. This 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 is this is this is the way people actually respond to that. Where. We all pull resources. We all want to eat. We all want to sleep. We all want to be warm, and um, it's the very. I mean, it's it's so humanistic. Well, it's it's I, the basis. It's actually the basis of communalism. Yeah, is it, it's building building societies. That's what, what we're it is. you know. It's you and me and the other guy and all the other people. And even though we may disagree on certain things, we all need to eat and we all want to be warm. If we work together, we will all do that. That's how we build civilization ultimately. You know? Yeah, yeah. Don't get in each other's way. You know, don't hurt the other guy. Let, as long as no one's hurting anyone else, and why can't you get along? Exactly. Yeah. And, and this this film, I mean, it, it feels explicitly about that. I mean, I don't want to get. I mean, I know that I have a reputation for getting over intellectual about these things, and I don't. Never like, happened I, once. I think I think Fulci is honestly trying to do this. I think this mm-hmm. is legitimately what this film is trying to say, and I think that I mean I, I kind of I want to resist saying it's profound, but I think it is kind of profound. I think it is really like within this genre, it's doing something really really interesting and really really putting that out there is this like uh, thing. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, this reminds me of the best parts of Deadwood. I know uh, you haven't seen Deadwood, Lee, but <laughs> Deadwood is all about this uh, this idea of building communities where none would exist before, and. Uh, this film isn't as sophisticated as Deadwood, but it's absolutely... I mean, it's also, you know... It doesn't one, have seasons it's to also, go through. It's also 5% <laughs> of the length, you know? So, yeah. you know, But it's absolutely exploring some of the same ideas, and uh, it's... I mean, it's really worth watching. If you haven't seen this, it's its worth it. Definitely. Yeah. Although, uh, all, all this great stuff we're pulling from it, and then let's go back to the reality of this fucking soundtrack for this film, because, my God, is it terrible. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this 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 is this is the tail end of the spaghetti western genre essentially, and you were sort of moving away from the standard kind of spaghetti western soundtracks, and you couldn't move farther away than what they have here, pretty much. Uh, this, I, this would, is... I would I would kind of like Morricone before he dies to write a uh, a score for this. Yeah, because like, this is like just before he dies to go. Okay, I'm gonna write a score for Before the Apocalypse to throw on there. To make for the apocalypse the masterpiece it should be, you know, because <laughs> this the soundtrack's done by Green, Greenfield and Cook and Benjamin Franklin Group apparently. And it sounds my like God. a law office. Yeah, really. Not doesn't a, it? <laughs> it doesn't <sound> like <laughs> but but my God, it's terrible. It sounds like this the worst kind of derivative mamas and the papas kind of stuff. Like it it, it sounds like the really weak sauce version of the of the sort of country rock stuff we were listening to in the Crown International Pictures films for those beach party movies and stuff. It do, it doesn't fit at all. Like I, I don't I'm, know. I'm, I'm reminded slightly. I don't know. Um, it's been a while since I've mentioned William Goldman on this podcast, so I might as well do it today, right? You know. Yeah. Um, 
in Adventures of the Screen Trade, there is the uh, full-length script of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, which, by the way, we should definitely cover on this podcast at some point. Um, mm-hmm. Just throwing that out there. Goldman mentions, and this screenplay was written in 1968, he mentions that a bunch of the, um, the kind of folk Rocky stuff that was popular in 68 was pretty reminiscent of the stuff that was kind of popular in the 19th century, you know. And mm-hmm. I kind of responded to it as, uh, you know, this is 75, and they're kind of doing this uh, slightly poppy, kind of pop-rocky, folk guitar kind of thing, which feels very current, or at least not not current for 1975, which I don't... I mean, it feels like this kind of... like It doesn't feel very Spaghetti Western in the sense of it doesn't oh. feel like Bacalov or it doesn't feel like uh, Marconi. I mean, it was distracting to the degree that it was kind of like, what the fuck is going on? Like, what are you trying to say? Yeah. But, like, it didn't it didn't pull me out of the movie. Well, like, they, yeah. uh, they just had a new commercial. I just saw kind of like somewhat similar kind of a style... They're remaking Magnificent Seven, mm-hmm. and I love Magnificent Seven. I'm not happy about the remake, but during the whole remake, it was a rap song about the Magnificent Seven playing over the commercial. And you so, know so, what? So Paul, so not Paul, I'm just gonna. About it. <laughs> so Paul, you realize that the Magnificent Seven is itself a remake, right? It, it is a remake of uh, Seven Samurai. I know that, but it wasn't really a western, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, but I like. I mean, but, when they, you... but so I don't know, like, okay, so what kind of music are you going to set in this film? Or is that just the theme song at the end when the, when the credits play? You know, I'm like, how are they going to do that? Because that's very contrasting, too, just like this film. Like, that style of music isn't going to be conducive to a nice Western vibe. I don't know. Well, well here's the weird thing. The music from Four of the Apocalypse, you know what sound? It sounds very current to me in that it's a movie from the 70s. It's, mm-hmm. It sounds very much like a lot of these sort of... Uh, Biker exploitation, exploitation horror films of the time. They would have kind of soundtracks like that, where you know they just they weren't even thinking about trying to score it to any mm. sort of degree. They're just like, no. what kind of what kind of cheap pop rock stuff we, can we get that the yeah. kids going to the drive-ins would you know listen to at that to that point? Right. So it, it feels like that. It feels like a bunch of Italians who actually didn't know the American market all that well, <laughs> and they just. It, it, it really, really, what you're saying is, it's capitalism run wild. It, yeah. it really is. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. All, all we really care about is our is our immediate. You know, the kids will like it. The yes. kids will like yeah. it. Don't worry. I like it. I but can't I, even really remember the fucking music. If you're, if I'm honest. Well, I, for 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 me, I like literally. I kind of. I'm with Paul on this. By the way, that's the last time you'll ever hear me say the final. Wow! Wow! I would follow this because I completely forgot the score until Lee mentioned it, and I'm like, "What? What's going on with the score?" And then he like starts talking, and I'm like, "Oh right!" But like, I kind of responded to it in this kind of vaguely positive, kind of sixty forty kind of way. Like, yeah, well, you know, it's not it's not Morricone, so fuck you. But like, you know, as a movie score, I didn't mind as much. So apparently, it only bothered me a lot. Moving on. Uh, um, it's, it's only because you don't know how to read film, Lee, and you have okay. no uh, understanding of cinema. And okay. uh, so, so well, that's it. See, the thing is, my problem is that you don't really hear the music when the fast forward button is pressed. They, they, the music that, shuts off. That would be a problem, yes. That, see, that was <laughs> why I didn't get it. Or I, you, you and I could have had an hour-long discussion, but I'm sorry. Uh, it just didn't work. 
Well, uh, let's talk a little bit about Thomas Milan here and his uh, Manson-like character of Chacho. Pretty interesting performance. We were talking about in the previous film how he's very subdued. In this performance, his method acting is pretty goddamn great, and he's very menacing and convincing as this murderous, rapist piece of shit who is almost a... Who would be a cult leader? I mean, if he if he had a chance to build enough followers and keep them alive long enough, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, because he, he gives them all uh, peyote, peyote. yeah, yeah. Pe- peyote, peyote buttons, yeah. yeah. And Testy has the wherewithal to spit it out, and probably in a in a way to his detriment because <laughs> he gets to witness all the horrible things that uh, uh, Milan ends up doing while they're all uh, subdued by the drugs and the ropes he tied around them, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, what did you guys think of his performance and his character in this? I don't know. He was. Um, I always thought like he came in and gave that uh, bad guy western realism to the film, where a lot of times when you were looking for the western kind of motifs, they usually fell a little bit short in this film. So he actually gave a lot of that credibility of the bad guy in the western, even though his group has to be the tiniest bad guy group I've ever seen in the western. They're all what? bad dudes, and they do bad things, and some of the shit they do is pretty pretty nerve-wracking to the bone when you when you see the the way they shot the carnage of the of the Swedish or yeah camp and stuff. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I, I get the, I get the feeling that his character is kind of this chaotic kind of personality where he can never necessarily keep a group for long. Like he just he'll he'll grab a bunch of a bunch of people with his personality and his force of will. And then he'll use them for one job or whatever he's d- going to do for kicks. Mm-hmm. And then, then he kills them and moves on. I think that's kind of mm-hmm. what his, his sort of modus operandi is. Mm-hmm. So, Well, they never actually got a chance to show them eating. The smorgasbord that fucking Chacha, uh, Chacha like, just automatically found in the desert. I'm like, okay. How many people yeah. are you trying to feed right now? Because you're doing a pretty goddamn good job. They killed that, every that, they that, killed every duck in the countryside. In that yeah, one I was going to say that has to be like 300 mile radius worth of animals in that fucking desert. They just shot in that scene. I was like, oh, wow, yeah. this is pretty. This is it. Just keeps going. It just keeps going. Wow, this is the most bountiful desert I've ever seen in a film. Pretty awesome. Pretty soon you're just going to see zebras coming through and elk and everything. <laughs> it's just it's getting bigger and bigger and better. Yeah. What are your thoughts there, Daniel? Uh, yeah, Chacho is a. Uh, I mean, he's he's a kind of fascinating figure in the sense of like he's this charismatic leader, but at the same time uh, ends up being murderous and abusive and fucking rapist. I think he's just using. I mean, he's he's basically a classic sociopath. You know, he's he's mm-hmm. this. Uh, really, what he does is he justifies the kind of second half of the film where his evil sets. <clears throat> Towards the uh, protagonist um, justifies the kind of ending of the film, but in a way, it's kind of like I mean, he he's kind of the direction. He's sort of the the uh, the signpost. Like he's how we know the film ends because once he dies, the film is over. The film itself isn't really interested in him. Like once he's not on screen, it's much more interested in uh, the community and those kind of aspects. And mm-hmm. so. There is this kind of um, paradox. There is this kind of a question of, like, what are we really examining here? Because we're examining both this kind of idea of uh, this community being built and uh, the child being born and the the miners and that sort of thing. 
but really what that does is it allows uh, our protagonist to then go and like take his revenge. Yeah. So so it is kind of like two different stories that have kind of been combined into one movie. Well, no matter what you're building, you always get dragged back in sometimes into the into the rough life, you know that kind of thing too. Well, well really, what he does is once uh, I mean, you know, our um, once uh, the woman dies, once the the mother dies, that's really the thing that like drives him to go back and kill the guy, you mm-hmm. know, which which uh, really tells you what he values. As a, as a character, as a human being, that is, he was he was kind of I don't want to say he's like perfectly willing to kind of let bygones be bygones, but he's certainly like focused on his own community and his own like you know the adopted child sort of thing. And then once she dies, once he doesn't have her in his life anymore, he's like, well, fuck that shit. I now have to go kill this guy. Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, he's rational. He's like, you know, why would I go do this? I'll probably end up dead anyway. Who gives a fuck? You know, we're all good. We'll just move on. And then when she dies, she goes, you know, you know what? No, we're gonna do this. We're doing this right now. But the funny thing is, <laughs> I'm gonna, the end I'm of gonna the film, leave the child. I'm gonna leave the child with a group of minors, and yeah. then, you know. Yeah. Well, the, 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 the actual Ch- Chaco, his character gives me a little bit of the meat that I need for the western. But at the same time, I'm gonna contradict myself because the end of the film, it failed as the end of a classic western film to me again. It goes back and it takes what you expect and it gives you something different. The, the anticlimactic end to Chaco's death was something that I did not expect. I didn't expect a simple, you know, gut shot roll around in the hay kind of an ending. You know, you don't get the classic shootout. You don't get that classic kind of feel. Well, it's, it's um, very much... And, I mean, and Chaco I... actually wins in the end, if you look at it, because you don't get this stern-faced hero either, because you can see Stubby break down and just fucking unload his gun in the in the Chaco at the end, you know. Let it, seeing that you're let he still Chaco still got to him in the end. His what he said to his, you know, he's not a he's not stoic, you know, he's not stone faced. Well, well, there, you know, there, there's no there's there's no hero here. There's no right. there's no sense of this guy is doing something right for his community. This guy is taking revenge. Yeah, and uh, he's he's doing this because. He wants to. Like it's it's totally individually based, you know. The shaving scene um, is great though. I oh, it's 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 this amazing it's this amazing sequence where it feels like uh you know, I mean, basically I've crippled this guy and therefore I'm going to completely ignore him and just shave my face because like I can. And I he know he knows where this is going. Like he mm-hmm. he knows what he knows what's really happening here. And I kind of like the fact that he just murders the guy in cold blood. I mean, yes, it, it violates the Western, but it, it um, just as what we were saying with the earlier film, it uh, reflects this idea of, like, we're going to challenge all the conventions of the Western. We're going to mm-hmm. suddenly communicate this, like, how brutal this really is. High Noon is great, but High Noon is not how people actually lived in 1875. This is much more... What life is cheap meant, where mm. you're dead and you're just gonna get like pushed off in a corner somewhere, and that's that. You know, and this is what that means. I really appreciated that. I really appreciated that we get this kind of moral complexity from this guy. You know, yeah. That we want we want Chaco dead because he's a fucking shithead. I mean, he's a rapist and a and a murderer and all that sort of thing. 
But it's not like he's being killed by a you know a court process that is like fair and impartial. He's being killed by one of his victims because his victim said like oh, fuck I can do this mm-hmm. done. I mean Shaco's group did you know I mean you don't usually see too many child deaths in films but like and they laid laid they laid Clem right next to the dead girl on the road and he's fucking half insane and half you know hurt because of his leg shot and you got visuals in these films you don't usually see in other films like they don't usually go there this one went there it went for like you said gritty reality shit sucks and that's it yeah even when Clem was just unceremonially laid out with his ass gone just just that realism when uh, especially when Bud goes insane I always thought it was funny when I watched that part because the mice didn't taste very good but Clem turned out to be pretty good it also also reminded me of the true story of the Donner Party the last person they rescued was still eating human flesh when they they found him but there was a full leg of uh, cow or steer, steer outside Ox, it was ox, ox leg. He, it was outside. It was a full leg of it, and his reply was, "I didn't like that. It was too dry." <laughs> he, he preferred the human flesh over that, and he ended up getting taken back and living a full life, uh, telling, retelling his stories in San Francisco until he died. Yeah, but that was kind of reminded me of that. You know, when they were like, "Oh, the mice taste shitty," but hey, look at this. This tastes great. I found it interesting that basically uh, Stubby renounces any sort of chance for any sort of personal redemption or being an actual, you know, standard Western hero. I mean, he, he admits to himself he what he is. Uh, I'm a gambler. Like, he, he basically tells Chacho, yeah, I, I snuck in when you guys were asleep and I killed your two friends and now I'm going to kill you and you're defenseless. And that's what a gambler does. He doesn't take any fucking chances, you know. He, he, he comes in and... And he stacks the deck to his to his advantage, and then yeah, he walks off a broken like essentially he walks off being Django at that point. Like he he walks yeah. off a broken man. He he is he is now a wandering broken man with with a broken past, and he's no longer a hero anymore. Whereas in another in another picture, the right thing to do would probably just stay in the miners' community and raise your kid and live happily ever after, probably. You know, well, but, there's no. I mean, we don't really get an indication. He might go back and then, like, you know, raise. I I get the feeling he doesn't though. I I I, really I, I, I kind of thought like uh, I th- I thought of there will be blood and uh you know bastard in a basket you know just. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, we don't really know what's going on. Yeah, I kind of got the feeling he doesn't. He, he you know, the, the, but that that's a narrative convention, right? Yeah. Like yeah. The, the story works best if the miners adopt the kid and raise him as their own. You know, yeah, that's not necessarily a character bit. That's a that's a narrative bit. And that's not, I mean, that's not a bad thing. That's just like you know, that's just how I process that. Yeah, this film was cut down as well, just like Django Kill. It was cut in a lot of places. The original 104 minute running time was cut down to 87 minutes for the U.S. release. So they basically cut out all the graphic torture and all that stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, pretty much yeah. all that fun stuff. The skin cut off the stomach. The lines that Chacho uh, feeds to uh, test, uh, to uh, Stubby in the final scene about how he, he raped uh, Lynn Frederick's character and all that stuff, um, that was cut out. It was, it was much more cut and dry, just sneak out and shoot him, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. But, of course, all restored now for the current versions that are out there. DVD, Blu-ray... There was a DVD from Anchor Bay in 2001, 
and then Blue Underground took it up in 2007. Uh, it was re-released in the version I have, which is a Midnight Movies collection from uh, Blue Underground that also has two other Thomas Milan Spaghetti Westerns in it, uh, Companion Arrows and Run Man Run. And uh, there's also... Um, I don't think there's any Blu-rays of this yet, for sure. I wouldn't be surprised if they show up soon. Blue Underground's basically in the process of transferring all their library over to Blu-ray, so there you go. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, this both these films, again, I'll just reiterate, are streaming on Amazon Prime right now, so you mm-hmm. can watch both of them. If you are a Prime member, I think uh, you could rent this for like $3 or something, and, abs- I mean, you know, $3. So yeah. It's, it's great, you know. I, I dare say this is probably, um, for me now, one of the top three or so Fulci films I've seen. Like, I like this is actually a pretty major accomplishment as a filmmaker when you compare it to the rest of his work as well, I think. Uh, there's some really great stuff in this that you don't see in his I mean, other I mean, work. Not even, not even, I mean, just look at this. Uh, one thing I, I did want to uh, mention just before we, we, I know we're wrapping up here. This is 75. This is the very end of the Western as the kind of big commercial genre, basically. You, know? yeah. you really don't have any, like, major Westerns, you know, that are, like, big box office hits after this as, as you know, kind of a traditional thing. I mean, you know, 75 is when, like, the blockbuster is going to happen, the Western goes away. That's what's yeah. going to happen. Um, so this is almost, like, for me, this is almost like the the great commentary on the Western genre. It is uh, interrogating that genre and doing some. I mean, the the deep humanism is what re, what I respond to. Like I know that Fulci was very interested in the uh, the gore and the uh, you know the, those kind of elements of it. But to me, it's not that. That's not what interests me in this. It is the the characters, the communication between them, the relationships. And just the community that's being built. I expected very little coming into this. Like quite honestly, it's it's a phenomenal film. I mean, it really Sometimes is. Sometimes it's best to come into a film like yeah, that. Yeah, I I love coming into these things knowing nothing. But this is uh, this is an amazing film, and uh, the best thing I've seen from Fulci so far. You know. I just realized too that the two films that I that always pop into my head when I think about uh, Michael Pollard is uh, he dies in all three of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I was thinking about Scrooge and Sleepaway Camp Three, and then now uh, this. I'm like, what the fucking dies at everything he's in. Jesus. Yeah, he was. He also popped up in the Rob Zombie film too. He's in House of Thousand Corpses. And mm-hmm. I don't remember he died in that one. I don't think he. Did, I don't think but, he died in that one. No. No. Okay, so there's one he lived. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, he's he's a great actor. He's he's a very underrated actor as well. I think like he's he's got that he's sort of on that William Sanderson quality level kind of thing where yeah. you you see his face everywhere and you know who he is, but he does you don't see him get the big lead parts just because he is that kind of like permanent baby face kind of guy. Like even even now at his age, he still looks like a fucking uh, overgrown child essentially. <laughs> But, Wasn't uh, it? Uh, what was Ron Howard's brother? Is the same way? Is that his name? Is Ron Howard's uh, brother? He's oh yeah, but he, he, he's the most overgrown, ugly child. He's like if the kid from <laughs> Shane. Was he up. an Ice Cream Man? Yeah, he was. Yeah, an and he's, he's he's but he's been in everything. And so yeah. that's one of those things. Yep. Goddamn. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I guess we can wrap up now. I, I think uh, basically a recommend for both movies. Definitely four of the apocalypses. I, I think we're all in agreement here that. It's definitely the one of the two to check out if you're going to check out either one of these. Um, and, uh, yeah, Paul, where can people find you on the Internet? P.A. Brunus YouTube, uh, P.A. Brunus Facebook, and then check out uh, 
Oil Paintings by P. Romali on Facebook and paulromali.com. Yeah. Daniel, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Daniel Lee Harper, uh, and you can find all the podcast shit I do and the writing shit I do uh, always spaceman.com or at uh, rudertronpress.com. And um, I'll not describe that this week because uh, everybody knows. It's fine. Yeah. Next week, we're going to be doing a Lee Van Cleef episode. So uh, I've got three films, and I'm probably going to choose two out of the three. I don't think we're going to do three films. I don't know if I have the time to go through three films. So so we're going to do a couple of classic Lee Van Cleef westerns outside of his Leone stuff. Of course, you can find us at tmbdos.podbean.com for all of our links to iTunes, Facebook, YouTube. Uh, go to our Facebook group. Join up for They Must Be Destroyed on Site. Leave us comments and questions there. Single best way to get in contact with us. And uh, until then... Thank you very much, gentlemen, for joining in. It was uh, nice that you got to least squeeze in for the last one there, Paul. Yep, thank you. Yeah. And uh, we'll see you guys next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Cheers.
Thank you for listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight. For past episodes, links to the host's other stuff, and links to various podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. There you can also find our iTunes, YouTube, and Facebook links. Please join our Facebook group, as this is the best way to get in contact with us and to keep up to date with what's coming up on the podcast. We also can be found as part of the Oi Spaceman family of podcasts at oispaceman.com, where you can find various sci-fi-themed podcasts about Doctor Who, Red Dwarf, Firefly, and classic sci-fi novels. If you decide to subscribe to us through iTunes, please take a moment to leave us a star rating and a review. Thank you. Drive through.